from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Longshot is a production of McClatchy Studios and iHeartRadio. Previously on Return Man. It was courtroom capacity at that particular time, whatever the capacity was, and we had people on the outside. The attorney said that nobody would talk, period. Not one person wanted to talk about it. Police people know what to say to put fear into people. It involves race, the mental state of the person, and a town that was scared to death to say anything. There are conspiracies in the world, and in the Jim Crow South, having a theory about that conspiracy might not be wrong. In the course of researching this story, there was at least one key voice I hadn't really heard from. Uh, it was about the NFL player that committed suicide in Lancaster. Former Lancaster Police Chief Larry Lauer. Records from the South Carolina State Law Enforcement Division show that Lancaster Police handled the investigation into Jim's death themselves. We did lab work for okay. the investigating agency. We did not independently investigate. The lack of transparency from Lancaster authorities cost Jim's family closure and left an information vacuum that has been filled by conspiracy theories for nearly 50 years. They say he committed suicide. But they say. Almost none of Lancaster's black residents I interviewed believe Jim died the way police said, including the only black person who served on the inquest panel. They want to say he grabbed a police gun and shot himself, but I don't believe that shit. Lauer now lives in Georgia 
and until recently served on a local school board. He basically hung up on me when I tried to reach him by phone. So in the summer of 2018, I went to him. I needed to understand why Lancaster police took the actions they did and where Jim's family was supposed to go from here. Mr. Lauer, that is Brett McCormick. From the Herald, McClatchy Studios, and iHeartRadio, this is Return Man. I'm Brett McCormick, and this is Part 7, Conspiracy Theories. Number 395, Richard Perry Loving at Ayala Palance versus Virginia. Jim was a ladies' man, no doubt. That was one habit he never hid well. There's nothing bad that I could tell you about, but other than he just loved women. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court, I am Bernard S. Cohen. Virginia stands here today, and in this loving case, for the first time, tries to find a justification other than white racial supremacy for the existence of its statute. Jim died five years after the Loving v. Virginia Supreme Court case struck down interracial marriage bans nationwide. The state is ignoring the right of Richard and Mildred Loving to wake up in the morning or to go to sleep at night knowing that the sheriff will not be knocking on their door or shining a light in their face in the privacy of their bedroom for illicit cohabitation. But South Carolina's ban on interracial marriage officially lasted until 1998. Only Alabama's ban lasted longer. While he was in the pros and all of that, you know, white was white and black was sure. black and right. whatever, you know. To butcher it didn't matter. Jim's brother Elroy and Elroy's wife Linda. He was dating the chief of police's daughter. Oh, really? During that time. Henson. Henson, okay, the guy who's gun. Yeah, yeah. We think that Butch got involved with his daughter. That is the one that shot Butch. Do you know her name? No. I was told repeatedly that Jim was involved with one of Red Henson's daughters. They're white, and the theory is that Jim, a black man, somehow died in the police station because of that. That's, that's, that, that was what they were, they were saying, something about his daughter. I didn't even know the young lady. Floyd White was one of Jim's high school coaches. And I can imagine that being a football player nationwide, stuff like that, you know. He come back home, you know, they're home, son. Dad's not going to allow it, they're not going to accept that. I heard some version of this theory many different times over the past three years. Red Henson did not like the fact that his white daughter was riding around in the car with Jim Bushcock. Lancaster native Michael Bogan attended Bar Street School a few years after Duncan. And for whatever reason, Jim Duncan received a message to come to the police department. After he entered the police department, Jim Duncan was then dead. Did you know uh, Red Henson's daughter? I mean, did you know her name? I did not know her name. Uh, I, matter of fact, I, if, I, I never seen her. Uh, yeah. If you showed me a picture of her right now, I could not tell you one way or the other if that's his story. Right. Okay. No one could identify which daughter Jim might have been involved with. And as conspiracy theories go, it combines a few familiar threads. It involves an overprotective father, which has been a dramatic staple forever. 
But at the same time, a killing like that was hardly without precedent. As just one example during Jim's lifetime, the alleged crime of a black man flirting with a white woman was exactly what led to the death of Emmett Till in Mississippi, one of the most gruesome hate crimes of the 20th century. My baby was taken from his uncle's home and my aunt's home, and I found out about it 9.30 Sunday morning. This is Till's mother, Mamie Bradley, speaking to reporters at the time. I thought it was sufficient to mind my own business. I didn't realize that everything was my business, that the way the people are treated all over the earth was my business. Now I know it. And unless we can get enforceable laws, we might as well just forget everything. Lieutenant Henson had three daughters. I work at the uh, newspaper in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Was your dad uh, Russell Henson, the police officer from Lancaster? Darlene Hopkins is the youngest of those three daughters. Through all the reading I've been doing, I haven't found very much information about your dad. And so I just was trying to find out more about him, and I had come across your name in his obituary. and just. She declined to appear in this podcast, but she told me she wasn't living in Lancaster when Jim died. In our call, she said I might get more information from her older sister, who was in town when it happened. Okay, so you weren't living in Lancaster then? Gotcha, okay. Barbara Ferguson was Henson's middle daughter. Just wanted to ask, did you live in Lancaster when it happened? She spoke to me briefly from her home not far from Lancaster, though she too declined to lend her voice to this podcast. Ferguson didn't understand why I would be looking into the story at all. Uh, Just because the NFL player's family still has like a lot of you know, in their opinion, unanswered questions about it. And, you know, I think it has a lot of similarities to things that are going on now. You know, it's an interesting story to to look at in that regard. Ferguson and I spoke for about 15 minutes. She told me her father rarely talked about Jim's death or anything that happened on the job. For the most part, I think she was about as friendly as any of us might be if a reporter called out of the blue, basically wondering if her father had been involved in a murder. I mean, I just think they they think it was out of character for their relative to have killed himself. So, you know, I I think that's more of the issue than anything. They don't really have exactly an idea of what else would have happened. Ferguson told me that by 1972, she was in her early 30s and that her sister's recollections were a little off. She said that when Jim died, she had already moved away from Lancaster with her husband and they already had a family of their own. Ferguson says she'd never even heard of Jim Duncan before seeing the news about his death. And and honestly, I didn't I didn't think you would really know much about it. I was more wanting to know more about your dad and, and I mean just what he was like or did he have a nickname or whatever. You know, make him more of a person instead of just the guy whose gun was used. The lieutenant was a World War II Navy veteran and had been a deacon at his local Baptist church. By 1972, he'd been a member of that local police department for almost 20 years. No one I spoke with knew of any incriminating behavior by Henson, and I found no evidence that he had an adversarial relationship with Jim, or people of color in general. So, one of the conspiracies that I was told by some people I talked to was that he had a reputation in Lancaster as somebody that talked to white women a lot because i i think that there was the the stretch or the leap maybe that his death in the police station 
had something to do with talking to white women or something like that. I think, I think that was... Ferguson told me our conversation was the first time she'd ever heard that theory, and that it wasn't worth a second thought. She added that their other sister, Margaret, is now deceased. Margaret was alive at the time Jim died, but she was also living out of state. So according to Ferguson, none of Henson's daughters knew Jim, and his death didn't really impact them. Not long after Jim's death, Henson resigned from the Lancaster Police Department without announcing future plans. His obituary said he went on to become police chief in nearby Pageland, where Jim and Elroy had once hustled pool. When he left Lancaster, Chief Lauer said of him, quote, He's an excellent officer, and I certainly wish him the best of luck in his new work. After my conversations with Henson's daughters, I can't rule anything out. It's possible Jim had been involved romantically with a white woman. But at the time, rural South Carolina was very different from the interconnected world of today. I can believe Henson's daughters might not have even heard of Jim during his life, and I feel confident they weren't involved with Jim or in any way connected to his death. Okay. Well, I really appreciate you um, talking to me, though. I I know it's sort of a weird thing to get a call out of the blue about, so... But I also have to wonder if the incident might have affected Henson and his family more than Ferguson claimed. Right before we hung up, she insisted, quote, some things are better left alone. It was just not that big a deal. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico, Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta Visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums 
to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this hundred-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. I don't think Ferguson is alone in that assessment. For many people in Lancaster at the time, at least many white people, it was just not that big a deal for a black man to allegedly walk into his hometown police station and without saying a word, rip a gun from Lieutenant's holster and shoot himself in the head. It made me wonder if I'd been asking the wrong question. They lived in a small, little, sleepy southern town. What if there wasn't any sort of cause and effect that makes sense here? Racism was abundant, but it was just, you know, white. Right, right on there. Mm-hmm. From all my research into Jim's life, my overriding impression of race relations in 1960s Lancaster isn't so much a clear list of racist events. Mostly, it's a crushing sense of apathy by white people. That's not an event. That's a social structure in which every event unfolds. I thought back to something Alice told me about her late husband. He had a favorite poem. Hmm. Interesting. She never knew what it was called or where he'd found it. But Jim would often repeat the lines. Let others cheer the winning man. There's one I hold worthwhile. Tis he who does the best he can, then loses with a smile. Is that from something? Or can you say it again? I'll have to look that up and see where it came from. That presumption of losing even smiling as it happens, fit a dynamic that USC law professor Seth Stoughton has studied. That idea of how we interact with people, it depends on our perception of their social status. And in the 60s and 70s, a black man had, I think it is fair to say, significantly less social status, certainly compared to a police officer at the time. That was an especially fragile state of affairs in a place like Lancaster. We're constantly making those judgments, and we're using them to adjust how much deference we give the other person and how much deference we expect them to give us. There's some problems that are particularly acute in the policing context when both people expect more deference than the other one is giving them. Social psychologists call this an asymmetric deference norm. The officer might say, this person should defer to me because I am the authority. The other person might say, the officer should defer to me in at least some respect because I am a taxpayer or something like that. That's one thing I've always found so interesting about Jim's return to Lancaster and those theories about Henson's daughters. It is coming to Duncan, a real threat. 
not because I've seen anything to suggest they were connected to Jim, but because the belief they could have been was its own evidence that Jim no longer fit with Lancaster's deference norms. Well, you know that they were back in town. That's for Forrest Butch. I didn't see him daily, but we knew he was in town when he was there. Rosie Gilliam is the son of Sandy Gilliam, Jim's Bar Street and Maryland State football coach. Sandy Gilliam moved his family back to Lancaster in the early 70s when he left football behind and took a job at Springs Mill. Today, I think that people might suggest that there is some, I don't know, ill will directed toward him by the police. Mm -hmm. And I think then, of course, people thought that. I mean, but there was nothing that, certainly nothing that we could prove. And as kids, I know our general thought was that there was probably something that was not right. Yeah. But it was more of a fear that, you know, make certain you don't put yourself in a position where this could happen to you. Bush Duncan was a idol, Jim Duncan. Jim had achieved a stature that far exceeded even the white authorities in Lancaster, and those authorities knew it. Even if he wasn't brazen enough to approach a white officer's daughter, the mere fact that he could have was richly symbolic. The best thing that could have happened was him not to be there in the first place. Rosie Gilliam was a teenager when Jim died and still looked up to the Super Bowl champ. Why was he A, in Lancaster, and B, why was he at the police department? Right. And, you know, had either one of those things been a no, then maybe he'd be alive today. So in the police station, whether Jim talked about a love affair or anything else, his main offense was already committed simply by being there. The Baltimore Colts are the world professional football champion. What if the question isn't what happened, but how it happened? The potential for conflict comes up when the officer may not just view lack of deference as something that is upsetting, they may view it as something that requires a physical response. Here's USC law professor Seth Stoughton. I can think of no better example than the Sandra Bland traffic stop. Hello, ma'am. Whether it takes high patrol, the reason for your stop is you didn't fail. You failed to signal your lane change. You got your driver's license insurance with you? After an initial interaction, the officer walked back to his car, wrote out what we later learned is a warning ticket, walked back up to Sandra Bland's car, and one of the first things he said was, you seem irritated. You okay? I'm waiting on you. you this is your job. I'm waiting on you. What do you want me to Oh, you seem very irritated. I am. I, I really am. What I'm getting a ticket for, I was getting out of your way. You were speeding up, tailing me. So I move over and you stop me. So yeah, I am a little irritated, but that doesn't stop you from giving me a ticket. So. If that had been me in my newer model car, dressed in my business suit, I think the cop would have, again unconsciously and without realizing it, given me a little more deference than he gave Sandra Bland. But what he did with Sandra Bland is he waited four seconds. And he said, are you done? You asked me what's wrong and I told you. Okay. So now I'm done, yeah. Okay. In other words, he was telling her, I'm not deferring to you, that I don't care about or respect your concerns. They were in a staring contest. And the problem with a staring contest in this context is not who blinks first. It's who has the power to swing first. And that's the officer. I'm giving you a law for to turn around. Why will you hey, not tell you me what's not going complying. on? I'm not complying because you just pulled me out of my car. Turn around. Could something like that have happened in Lancaster? Especially then? 
Yeah, like just a little bit of time. I just wanted to ask you, you know, like what you remembered about that. Beyond George Lloyd's account, there isn't even independent confirmation of the timeline of Jim's death. We're just about ready to get the second half underway. Deep for the Colts, Jim Duncan. Again, I want to emphasize I'm not saying that that is what happened, but if Jim Duncan, the football star who is used to deference and even a degree of hero worship in Baltimore, comes down to South Carolina, the potential for explosive conflict is pretty obvious. We'll be back after this. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which is morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. For those close to Jim, the pain and confusion around his death has never really gone away. That same asymmetric deference norm was on display with Elroy. 
in the exchange he described with Chief Lauer. When Elroy said he was told not to look further into his brother's death because, quote, one death was enough. So maybe, I thought, Lancaster's former police chief might engage with me differently. Students of the Savannah-Chatham County public school system have missed seven instructional days this year. The school district seeks to make up lost instructional time, which would require board action. Less than two years after Jim's death, Lauer also left Lancaster. I think we have forgotten what we're here to do, and that is to educate our students. He moved to northern Illinois, then southern Mississippi, and eventually back to Georgia, where he wrapped up four decades of law enforcement. Then he joined the school board in Savannah, about a three-and-a-half-hour drive from Lancaster. Now, if I've got a teacher in a classroom that says, I can't teach right because of these makeup days, personally, I don't need that teacher. I'm 80 years old. I've been inconvenienced a hell of a lot of times in my life. Well, for those teachers who are crying about the fact they can't leave, I will be watching... Not long ago, the Savannah Morning News posted this exchange among board members over a routine scheduling question. If you're taking us down a road to destroy this board, and I'm not going to let it happen as long as I'm on it. Mr. Lauer, we're going to go on to another topic now. Is there anyone who would like to speak of something that is appropriate for this format? Lauer clearly hasn't lost his edge. You think that you were appointed Lauer, to be the president? Again, of Mr. the whole Lauer. entire district, and I'm sorry I disagree with your Lauer, you're analogy. Out of We're going to move on. One weekday, I drove down there and sat through a five-hour school board meeting. Afterward, I caught up with Lauer in the administrative complex. Mr. Lauer, and is Brett McCormick. I, I talked to you on the phone like a month or two ago. I, I'm, I'm coming down here from uh, Rock Hill, South Carolina. I'm doing the story on Jim Duncan. I wondered about social dynamics in Lancaster and the ways that could have influenced Lauer's hasty investigation into Jim's death. I don't care who you are, where you come from, or what your lifestyle has ended up being. Even if Jim had taken his own life, exactly as law enforcement said, It is our job to treat you equally and fairly. Their relative inaction afterward suggested Jim's death was treated less equally because of his skin color. I just wanted to come down and try to talk to you out of fairness and not not to try to... Unfortunately, Lauer chose not to have his voice appear in this podcast. He could have talked about the photo that ran in the Lancaster News back in 1974, shortly before he left South Carolina. The image showed him receiving a certificate of appreciation from the newly formed Lancaster chapter of the NAACP. The photo appears to have been taken in Lauer's wood-paneled office, the chief standing with three black men in suits, and the secretary of the NAACP, her hair in an afro. The certificate thanks Lauer for his, quote, unique and untiring service to the community. That recognition told a very different story than the incendiary quote Elroy remembered. The reason I wanted to come down here was to get your side of the story because Duncan's brother had said that you had told him um, not to pursue the matter, one death was enough. Do you remember saying that? Lauer told me, quote, No, ain't no way I'm going to tell somebody that. We did everything we could do to determine what really happened. That's me. I'm not a person that tries to cover something up. Lauer had a decorated career in law enforcement. 
he was reportedly chosen from more than 100 applicants to lead Lancaster's police department. Before his move to South Carolina, he'd been runner-up for Policeman of the Year in Savannah. That's part of what made things like a lack of a fingerprint test so confusing. Do you, do you remember, would you guys have had fingerprint evidence then? Because people always said, like, why didn't they test the gun or whatever? Lauer insisted to me, quote, SLED did the investigation, so it would depend on what they had done. But SLED, the state's law enforcement division, specifically told me they weren't in charge of the investigation. It sounds like SLED tested things that the Lancaster PD asked them to test. It appears that fingerprints were not among those things they wanted tested. A little leeway on specifics is probably fair for someone in their 80s, suddenly being asked about a case from decades ago. Still, my conversation with Lauer was brief, and I can't say I got much from it. You gotta know, I, want, I really wanted to talk to you because I sat through that whole meeting. But I, I appreciate you talking to me, though. I know it's a weird story, and you know, I don't want to do a hit piece you guys are on. With that, he told me he was late for another meeting, and he left. Have fun in your meeting. <laughs> For Lauer, clearly there's nothing more to be said. For the people who knew Jim and idolized him and loved him, anything at all would help. I mean, was it racial? Maybe. Was it about a woman? Maybe. Was it about drugs? Maybe. Did he kill himself? Maybe. I personally just accepted that was something we'd never know. Rosie Gilliam told me that once the inquest ended, the economics of daily life once again assumed top priority for much of Lancaster's black community. There are certainly people who demanded to know what happened, but even in retrospect, you know, once he was dead, is there really an acceptable answer that's going to make it, quote, okay? And just like that. And hip on a great play by Jim Duncan. Jim Duncan's name began to fade into history. For the Baltimore coach, number 35, Jim Duncan, and the ball game is underway. No one ever filed a lawsuit of any kind against the police. Not his family, and not Alice. It seems like you stashed it away. I don't think, I, I don't know that it'll be wrapped up for anybody, you know? She told me that part of her wonders if there's still time, and if there's still a point. The truth, she said, feels like a diamond in the rough, and that someday, the winds of time might finally expose enough to let that truth shine through. And then, late in my work on this project, I learned that Jim might finally get his day in court. And on part eight of Return Man. Hello. Linda, this is Brett McCormick. Somebody that knows that I'm working on this story called me and told me they found- Someone somewhere either died with it or is going to die with it, you're, you're never going to get anything out of it. If someone is responsible for taking someone else's life, the families deserve to know that. Whole communities deserve to know that. I don't think there's anything unusual about Lancaster. If you took away the date and time, could you imagine that happening today? And the answer is yes, you can. I'm Brett McCormick. Turn Man is a production of The Herald, McClatchy Studios, and iHeartRadio. It's produced by Matt Walsh, Kara Tabor, Kata Stevens, Rachel Wise, and Davin Coburn. 
The executive producer for iHeartRadio is Sean Titone. For lots more on this story, go to heraldonline.com slash returnman. If you have any additional information about Jim Duncan's life or death, email us at returnman at heraldonline.com. To continue supporting this kind of work, visit heraldonline.com slash podcasts and consider a digital subscription. And for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hannah Storm and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.